Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. So, two episodes ago, you heard Sam doing an interview with Dan Ozzy about his book Sellout. And it was all about when indie bands during the sort of like late 90s into the early 2000s were uh, being gobbled up by major labels, looking for the next big thing. Well, today we're exploring the success of the independent label SST. And we're doing it with Jim Ruland, who wrote the book Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST. Ruland is a self-described punk rat sailor and a writer. He has written for the Los Angeles Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books. His work has also appeared in The Believer, Electric Literature, Esquire, Granta, Oxford American, and many, many other places. So SST was, of course, started by Black Flag founder Greg Ginn. But as you'll hear, the label is much more than just an imprint for Black Flag. And Sam and I kind of figured this interview would kind of go well coming off the heels of the Aussie interview and sort of connect the dots between the two eras and the evolution of American independent music. So you'll hear Sam talking to author Jim Ruland all about that. But before that, let me just remind you, please follow us on all the socials. Sam and I will be back uh, on the next episode with uh, an old school him and I discussing things. <laughs> we know we've been giving you a lot of interviews and like also the live show. But yeah, we'll be back for that right before the end of the year. And so with that, please enjoy this interview with Sam and Jim Ruland about SST Records and his book, Corporate Rock Sucks. Enjoy. To start with the book, which is this chronological narrative, I mean, starts with the creation of SST, the record label. Um, but actually, SST, the company, starts quite a bit before that. So I'm wondering if you could just start by maybe maybe um, telling us like what SST was and and who is Greg Ginn, the, the the person behind it. Yeah. So uh, so at the time that you know, Greg Ginn is starting SST Records. He's graduated from UCLA with a degree in economics, and he's been playing uh, with his band uh, Panic in Hermosa Beach for a couple years, but not having any success in getting any kind of gigs. And he has a little mail order electronics company called SST Electronics. And it's really fascinating because just a few weeks ago, um, I had an opportunity to see some of the catalogs and some of the zines that Greg Ginn produced as a teenager about amateur radio. And it's incredible how professional they are, even by zine standards. And we're talking about like early seventies, right? So, um, he was a very motivated, very intelligent, and a kind of a get shit done kind of a guy in this world of amateur radio and electronics. And at the time in Southern California, it was, you had the aerospace boom, right? You had all these World War II veterans who are returning to Southern California and part of this new boom in avionics and space and all the emerging technology. And so there was all a big community of people who were in and around Southern California. One of these people took Greg under his wing and showed him the ins and outs of amateur radio. And so it's this kind of like a, a DIY, um, DIY before DIY vibe, right? That there's this whole, the sense that there could be a network of these kind of self-motivated, self-trained, self-actualizing i guess for lack of a better word um tinkerers who create these really complicated like ham radio networks and societies basically which is like the the in some ways it, it maps really really well onto the kind of underground musical world that that greg would create in in, in coming years yeah it really does and what it is is a subculture because it's uh it's a group of people who have a passion 
for this you know emerging technology but one that can be very challenging to enter if you don't know the lingo right if you don't have the technical know-how you don't know what gear to buy i mean you can go to radio shack and get started but if you really you know want to know the ins and outs you kind of there's a lot to learn right so and, and greg was slid right into that and was very adept and the his zine was called i think it's called the it was called the novice and what it was is for people like him who were new to it and wanted to get involved so i think it's fascinating that gin's first uh entry into you know a diy community is as someone who brings people together to create a publication to establish and build a network yeah 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 and and with this also but it's funny thing like with this kind of um you know it's not a it's not a amateur network of of, of cloud watchers it's like this very precise <laughs> engineered approach <laughs> oh yeah and i am uh you know my research into this was very service level because it did not take very long for me to get to a point where i didn't understand what was being talked about i didn't understand the electronics and or, or any of that stuff so um but it was pretty amusing to read and it was very obvious that again at 14 15 years old was completely fluent in this uh, lingo that i felt you know alienated from so fast forward he's still got this kind of thriving fairly successful business um and he's gotten into music he he's after college and he's kind of sst and black flag come from hermosa beach which is you know it's always it's often referred to as la punk but it's not it's not quite la punk at all so i'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about kind of sst and and how it exists kind of on the um Almost like I think of it as like the outside of an outside. Absolutely. Um, that and, and what we're talking about is, you know, Hermosa Beach as a part of L.A., but apart from L.A. is something that a lot of the uh, the people who first wrote about um, Black Flag and the L.A. punk scene completely missed out on is is that it was it's not just another suburb of L.A. It was a, it's very distinct and and very different and it's also very far um i lived in the south bay for a number of years almost a decade and i remember i moved from the from north hollywood which is the valley one side of la to the beach cities on uh, the whole you know southwestern side of the county and I remember the first time I like drove, like I rented a room in a friend's apartment. And the first time I drove there, I remember getting a little scared because I was like, holy shit, this is far. I'm going to have to do this every <laughs> single day in traffic. And I was going past the airport when I started to get a sinking feeling like, man, I may have made a mistake. And right at that moment, you just see the waters of the Pacific Ocean and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, this is where I, this is good. This is where I need to be. And so what happens is, is that people who are, you know, from the South Bay, from the beach cities, is they tend to stay there because it's kind of far and uh, it creates this uh, bubble um, so that people who are in it stay in it. And it's really, really remarkable that so many people um, in the L.A. punk and hardcore scenes came from you know, this small, very, very small area. And in fact, many of them went to the same high school in Manhattan Beach, which is on a little corner that is, if you go one direction, you're in North Redondo and you go in another, you're in Hermosa Beach, right at this little spot. Like, I mean, over dozens of people went to the same high school, all the members of, of Black Flag, many of the members of Circle Jerks and Red Cross, and uh, other other bands, you know, wasted youth, you know, had members go there, and, and on and on and on. Just it's just fascinating. And so when Greg Ginn started Black Flag, it was because uh, I'm sorry, when he started the label, it was because he wasn't having any luck getting gigs in Hollywood. And the LA punk scene was about Hollywood, even though a lot of the writers came from other places and bands came from the Valley 
They came from East LA uh, and Boyle Heights. Some of uh, a lot of the writers for Slash Magazine were all from the San Gabriel Valley and were making the trek in to see shows. It was very much a Hollywood scene. And and Hermosa, you know, those bands from Hermosa Beach, starting with Black Flag, had a really hard time getting into it. They all attended shows at The Mask and things like that, but getting their own bands booked was another story. So, I mean, Greg starts SST partly out of necessity because he wants to get gigs, he wants to release records, and it's like classic punk fashion, partly kind of shaped by this like social and maybe almost eventually later like ideological rejection of this other scene, you know, like it we can't get gigs in Hollywood. Fuck fuck you guys, we're gonna make our own label. But but so once it gets started and you know, um releasing I guess like like uh nervous breakdown, um early early black flag releases, um, how does it like fit into the independent record label scene such as it was at the time in i guess los angeles or in the broader i guess california more generally um well it really took off and because greg in had all of this experience and know-how with sst electronics um it was no real big thing for him to print a catalog or to make a design an ad or to approach other zines about running ads for his new record in them, because he'd done all that stuff before. The biggest hurdle for him was, um, where do you get a rec- record uh, made? How do you do that? And um, that's where uh, the Nolte brothers and The Last came in, who were um, often cited as a big influence on Black Flag. And if you if you don't know anything about either band and you listen to them one after the other, you say, like, well, whoever said that is high because they sound nothing alike. And it has more to do with the fact that they were, uh, um, you know, a brotherhood because they were apart. I, I think what's really interesting about, you know, Greg Ginn didn't just say, oh, well, I guess we can't play in Hollywood. We're going to, well, well, maybe we'll just try something on our own. You know, it was more like, you know, like the Protestant, the beginning of Protestant faith and like martin luther nailing his you know yeah <laughs> it was in it was in response and and it was in opposition to what was going on in hollywood i mean he would have loved to have been a part of it but because they didn't want want him he took that very personally and that is in uh you know the story of greg in for the rest of his life yeah yeah, yeah. and no and there is that like puritan like dedication and purity and yeah no that's that's i i i really see that 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 comparison so the label though i mean like were there other independent labels at the time like what was the system of releasing you know your small band trying to make it what was the system for releasing records or trying to get signed yeah well there there were um I think, and this is where I think, why I think the LA punk scene is is uh, so much more fascinating than what happened in New York or what happened even in London, because in New York, all the major labels snapped up, you know, the popular punk bands, right? And tried yeah, to make Talking a, Heads are on Sire, right? Tried to make a go of it with them, and you know, see where see what they could do. And a few major labels signed LA bands cautiously and never really gave them a chance. But it was, I mean, the number of people that were showing up for punk gigs, I think record executives today would flip out and sign every single one of the bands, right? Because there was, there was so much energy and so many people. I mean, in some cases, you know, like at the Olympic, you know, 3,000 people are showing up to see, you know, the Circle Jerks, for example, you know, I mean, Right. That that kind of stuff doesn't happen to new bands anymore, right? So what you had in LA is all these people starting their own labels but starting them almost as afterthoughts because it was you had some people who were in the band, some people would be like, "Hey, well, I'll manage you or I'll take photos or hey, I'll make a zine and or help, you know, I can make a flyer." And so people were doing these things just because everyone knew had an idea of punk of punk from what they'd read about in newspapers. And I'm talking about the late seventies. 
mm-hmm. what they'd read about, like maybe the Village Voice or heard about from an older brother. Um, and then some of the bands were starting to, you know, to show up, you know, like the Damned and then uh, the Ramones and things like that. Um, but no one really knew what it, what a punk scene meant and what what all they didn't understand it. So they they just made it themselves. And people were like dressing up and, you know, making clothes, you know, out of thrift store finds. And because in Hollywood, there's there's amazing things in the thrift stores in Hollywood. So it turns out like the getups they came up with were just phenomenal. I mean, it was a really exciting uh, time to, you know, to be a part of the scene. So you had all these labels and no one really knew what they were doing. And it was, you know, like anything else, you know, people having fallouts and bad blood and stuff, but there were all kinds of, you know, really interesting records, you know, being made. So what's interesting though, and I wonder if this is like, um, at least partly uh, could be attributed to that distance from the LA scene and that sense of um, Hermosa being a, a, a closed off world is that my sense is that from, you know, I, I could, I be, could be talking out of pocket here. Like, I don't actually know like what X's touring regimen was, but it seems like from a very early moment, black flag are really hitting the road. In the early part of Black Flag's career, they would they would go up to San Francisco and do one-offs. I mean, that's a long drive with all the equipment and all the people in a single van. Um, they go up to San Francisco for a single show. They would go up and play San Francisco with shows when they didn't even have a singer. They would recruit Keith Morris, who had left the band, you know, like after... Uh, um, after he left, you know, he was, there was a little bit of a bad blood, but whenever, whenever Black Flag needed something from Keith, he would generally, you know, say yes. And so Black Flag would go and play a one-off show in San Francisco with like someone who wasn't even in their band. I mean, that just kind of shows the, the commitment and the vision that Ken had about the band, about what he was willing to do, what kind of hardships he was willing to take on just to, just to play. And wherever he went, he uh, made connections. And when he did make connections, he would come back. So San Francisco was really big, you know, um, for a number of years. And then from there, they like they also make connections in say, like Santa Cruz. Uh, they made connections in Vancouver and Portland and Seattle. So um, they would go up and down the West Coast. And it's interesting because some of the some of the bands that you know signed early on outside of the South Bay and the beach cities were bands that they met you know in those travels. It was mostly through the mail and a little bit in stores once they started working with uh, distributors. Um, there's some really fascinating stuff. Like I've always um, been really interested in. Um, uh, Green World Distributors, which was based in Torrance, which is right just, you know, in SST's um, backyard, also in the South Bay, you know, a real large um, city uh, in the part of the beach cities, part of the South Bay. And it's just amazing to me that like, and the people that started Green World then also started Enigma Records and that these people are, are literally like right in SST's back pocket. And um, they also helped out, um, you know other other uh, local record labels as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so kind of from a business model, almost like they they would go around with this, you know, incredibly iconic visual image. This, in, you know, this incredibly uncompromisingly intense performances, especially once Henry Rollins joins in '81, and then I guess both like individuals who wanted the records and. I guess record stores, you wanted to stock them, which is like right back to yep. HQ. And I mean, SST was moving around quite a bit and that became part of a problem because it was really hard for, they were intense about everything they did. As you mentioned, they were intense on the stage. They were touring, they would go and get in the van and drive places. But when you're, when you're doing one-off shows in San Francisco or up the coast in Vancouver, you can't be in your office, right? And uh, you can't answer the mail. You can't answer the phone. So that's when uh, Joe Carducci came in, and he was someone who had had an eye on SST. You know, he was uh, he was part of Systematic, which was a you know distributor up um, 
that had moved around a bit up north. And so he knew uh, about SST. He knew like what, what kind of numbers the records were doing, you know, and that he knew about more importantly that this is a, a band that's creating re- records and there's a high demand for these records and they need help because they're, they're so intense about everything that they do. And so it was a really good fit. Um, but from a, even earlier than that, I think, again, going back to Greg's understanding of how, you know, with, with the electronics business, that he knew that if he placed an ad in a zine, that these zines are, are just like SST. It's only a handful of people operating them. So that he knew that he could also, in a way, influence, um, you know, editorial uh, uh, content. So he could be like... Hey, you know, here's here's an ad and place mm-hmm. the ad, and then we'd also like one for next issue. And would you like to interview us? And, and these people are going to be like, well, sure, we'd love to do that, you know, because it's just a handful of people who are like maybe still in high school, right? We're not talking about the New York Times or the LA Times. Yeah, and and what's what's fascinating about all of this, and and it's one of I think like the the like the central contradictions of SST. And th- there yeah. are many, I feel like, um, you know, there's the, the question of like, is this black, is this like, is this really just kind of black flag, Greg's, like his artistic path, or is it like a more traditional record label? And, and another contradiction I see is this question of, is this a kind of a, a business <laughs> or is this right. a movement? And it, and it seems like it, at its best, it was able to kind of, blur the edges between the two so that you have like kids <laughs> sleeping on floors for basically no money because they believed in this lifestyle but also it was you know being run well <laughs> right i mean and that's what's interesting about um sst is that it was always you know the most professional outfit what i'm talking about in the in the uh, in the early days in the beginning in that it you know you know, people have told that I interviewed told me it's like, yeah, we do a show with with Black Flag, and we get a flyer in the we get flyers in the mail months in advance, so that they could go and spread the word about the show. I mean, I mean, people today don't do that. I mean, even whenever, even with all the advantages of being able to create a flyer digitally and send it digitally, people don't do that. So, I mean, we're talking. It was extremely professional, and I think that's that was you know part of this um double-edged sword of black flag is that they were it it gave them a leg up and it gave them advantages professionally in so many different ways um but it was also invited more trouble you know the more professional it became the more headaches they had so that um once you know once you didn't have you were too big to have people sleeping on the floor and things like that and too big to be not paying people money um some of the the flaws in the i guess for lack of a better word the business model started to show up yeah so before that though black flag made <laughs> like literally one compromise it seems like in their entire career which was signing with unicorn records and it proved to be it's like a true disaster for them. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that um, Black Flag was real, really good at is that like if they had an office, it was also their living space and it was also their rehearsal space. It was their everything space. Right. Uh, and they just made it work. Um, they would eat in there and sleep in there. And because they weren't, you know, um, partiers and didn't drink or do drugs um, for the most part they weren't attracting a lot of unwanted attention in that regard except you know they did attract a lot of attention from the police because one it was LA and two they were black flag and they were stirring up all this trouble and because Hermosa Beach was different they kept getting chased out of that and and chased around the different neighborhoods until they had they went on tour and they left knowing they had nowhere to come back to because while they were gone they were raided, so they needed a place to stay, uh, and for a brief period of time, uh, Black Flag was homeless. They came back and they were staying in a punk house for like fifty bucks a month, and they were literally doing SST business from a bank of payphones uh, down the street. 
so that's the time when they signed with unicorn and the thing with unicorn is is that it came with an office space and the office space was huge so that they could live there and they could sleep there and they could record here there and rehearse there so that was i wouldn't call it a compromise it was um for their way of thinking it was like this is everything we need in one place plus we can get you know better distribution and carducci who was new to the enterprise said i don't think you need to do that um i think i think we can handle it i think we can handle the distribution ourselves but um they they were homeless they needed a place to stay they didn't have an office which meant they didn't have a home so i wouldn't say it was a compromise so much as a move that was made out of desperation because it checked all the boxes for what they need in terms of a place to record a place to live you know on all those things and and a few, a few records did get made in that place like the meat puppets first record got uh recorded um, that unicorn so but what happened pretty quickly is kind of that same in a sense that that same pressure about the band and the same kind of bad reputation that follows them um kind of sours the relationship um between unicorn and, and to be to be clear like so unicorn is like a it's kind of a funny label right it's this kind of holdover from the 60s like c-list mainstream label right yeah it was more um it was definitely a product of the 70s and um but unicorn if i'm not mis i don't think they were a part of mca but they had a, a distribution deal with mca and that's what made unicorn appealing to um s to gin and to sst is the is the mca distribution deal and then um in a way, Black Flag's popularity, I, I really don't know what happened, why um, the head of MCA declined to promote the record, I mean, sorry, to distribute the record. And, and the record we're talking about, Damaged, which is damaged, the first, yeah, the first full, full length. length. I mean, yeah, we don't want this conversation to be like completely dominated by Black Flag, but but yeah, they Greg Inn had been wanting to make a record for years, and he'd put out four um seven inches each and, and was on his fourth singer and each time thinking that he was close to getting a, an album and then something would happen so this finally the new album is finally he has it sounds great he's got a new singer um they've got major label distribution and right at the 11th hour mca pulls out and then everything kind of collapses right and then from there um you know, after they had to go in and with their, with all their, their, you know, all the kids, they had to print up a bunch of stickers, cover up the MCA logo, and and then go through Unicorn's distribution. And from there, Unicorn stopped, they never paid, you know, what they thought they were owed, which is a little ironic considering what happened uh, to SST down the line. But they had their own accounting. They They knew how many records they printed it out pressed up because they did the pressing themselves and they knew how much money should be coming back and it wasn't happening so that's where all the the legal entanglements with uh mca started i mean sorry with unicorn started and the result being that that both labels sued each other um which was an unprecedented step for uh, an indie label then or now and and as a result of litigation black flag is kind of sidelined for like a year almost two years yeah uh, a lot of people will say that's what kind of killed the band um and that you know it, it's it's really funny like people tend to think of black flag in monolithic terms that they were like this you know one kind of uh um this band that put made one kind of music and that was it. But they, they went through so many changes and so many hardships and so many changes in personnel and embraced so many different styles of music that it's, it's not true at all. And, um, and I, and part of the reason was because they were legally prohibited from releasing new music under the black flag name, uh, during the period um, that the lawsuit was going on. They tried to get around it by putting out um, everything went black and that ended up 
landing Chuck Dukowski and Greg Ginn in jail uh, for several days, uh, an experience that neither one has been too open about. Yeah, I mean, certainly for any listeners who have not spent time with uh, the process of weeding out, yeah, there's more than one black flag. I'm a, I'm a big <laughs> I'm a big fan of that record as one of the strangest records ever made. It's well, wonderful. Yeah, and uh, that's not even the the strangest. Or depending, it just depends on your definition of strange. I mean, if if um, if a hardcore band releasing an album that one side is entirely spoken word, that's kind of strange, you know. And then you get deeper into the more jazz influenced stuff, and uh, yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, if there's somebody who's a huge Black Flag fan and they love everything Black Flag does, it's probably safer to say that they're a Greg Ginn fan. Sure, but it, this is a really important moment, I think, because it, it suggests to me, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking uh, on the show about kind of the '80s underground and the way that bands in this period of time create this economically functional small to medium scale movement you know where it's it's not just you put out records and you need to get signed or eventually you get day jobs that there are this set of bands you know maybe eventually they have to get day jobs in the 90s but they're, they're able to make a good living for a while within this underground economy. And and it's fascinating to, to think about this potential MCA distribution deal. Cause you know, you could, it, given that kind of corporate rock sucks, right? Like the title of, of the, um, the title of the book and, and a classic piece of SST, uh, um, I guess promo, like they had propaganda. <laughs> yeah. They, they had no problems being distributed by MCA if it helped them. Yeah, well, I think that's the start of it. The whole corporate rock still sucks was part of that reaction against MCA, right? You know, um, people that and and it was a real blunder by MCA too because um, American, I mean, Black Flag was you know the originators of American hardcore, and they had an opportunity to just make Black Flag, you know, one of the biggest heavy rock bands, you know, in the country. And, and they totally fumbled it. Um, there were so many labels. I mean, after Damage, so many labels and so many uh, bands, you know, were started to imitate the sound. And that was really frustrating again because he wasn't able to put out new music. Um, was, and actually very paranoid about it. But here's the, here's the thing, is that they won, Black Flag, SST won the lawsuit. They won the lawsuit and they were able to continue. It didn't kill them. And meanwhile, they had these other bands that were putting out amazing music, you know, like the Minutemen and the Meat Puppets and Husker Du. Um, and they were like, they were, that were starting to make, you know, make some noise on this weird alternative indie landscape that yeah, you guys well, talked well, about so much. And that, that was kind of, you know, the, the next chapter. I mean, it's one of the best runs of records, right? Like Meat Puppets to Double Nickels on the Dime and Zen Arcade all come out the same year, right? It's unreal. Yeah, and uh, uh, and don't forget My War. Yeah. Well. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Saint Vitus comes out, I think, that year too. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing run. And so, partly, I mean, I wanted to kind of, you know, so we've got this label. They've survived. Black Flag has continued touring through all this period of time. They've signed other bands. Some of them are local, like the Minutemen. Some of them are, I guess, attracted to SST's reputation, partially because of its linkage to Black Flag, like Husker Du, who start off as like a very fast hardcore band, um, though they don't stay there forever. So like where is sst by like let's say 83 84 where is sst in this um this american underground that seems like in many ways uh is kind of following paths that that black flag had helped lay down yeah oh absolutely i mean the touring network because that's all black flag could do is tour um you know during this period you know was was now something that was you know, other bands were following and, and 
and people were exchanging information. Other labels were starting up. I mean, it was it was, you know, definitely a very fertile period in American rock music. But you would never know it if, by listening to it on the radio because almost none of it ever appeared on the radio. Mm-hmm. Not until like college rock, but that would be you know still a few years ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to think about just kind of like the geopolitics of it, comparing it to you know touring problems with touring now, right? Like, Black Flag probably couldn't have done what they did in the '70s when gas was really expensive, <laughs> right? And we're seeing a lot of that with bands right now. You know, when you have uh, you know inflation and gas prices and hotel prices and food, everything more expensive. And then the enormous cost of what ha- of having to cancel a tour because of COVID, you have a lot of uh, bands who are like um, pulling the plug on their touring operations, or at least you know rethinking them until things are a bit more, you know, cost effective. So this is a moment, I guess. Let's say we're in eighty three, eighty four now, right? They've SST has released this kind of run of really era defining records and and then i think you run into again this question of is sst a record label where it's primarily a business or is it kind of a movement with black flag um as like the the spear point it seems like most of their their signing was kind of semi-happenstance right they don't have like sst a and r people and i guess i wonder you know um yeah, like how 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 all of that balanced out, and how how they 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 dealt with this kind of um, increasing acceleration of of the size of their operations. It was frustrating because you basically had all of it, it, the whole throughout the whole early part of the eighties, from maybe even from the late seventies, but through the through the probably until like let's say nineteen eighty six, bands all the bands that had, were part of the SST stable had a record that, that were waiting to come out. They were just waiting, waiting. Um, like the stains had to wait a year and a half for their record to come out. St. Vitus had to wait over a year for its, you know, for its second record to come out. Me puppets were always in a holding pattern. Who's Du often complained about the fact that they'd wait so long for their records to come out. And then there wouldn't be enough of them printed out. Same thing with uh, um, with the Minutemen, always waiting. So you, you had like a lot of frustration within, you know, the within because you know people were waiting for these, you know, for the finances to be available for for the book to come. I mean, sorry for the uh, records to come out. But from the outside, from the outside looking in, if you look, all of the bands that would become popular, like. Let's say in the at the peak of the indie era, like 1991, when um, when Smells Like Teen Spirit comes out, right, and kind of the game changer of that era, all of those record, all the people and all the artists, rock artists of the late 80s and the early 90s, absolutely worship SST. They're paying attention to what SST do, is doing. They're ordering their records, and even when even at this period, like. If you are buying a record in um, in Minneapolis, when you buy that, when you order that record through the catalog, you might get a flyer in the mail for a Who's Gurdu show near you, um, and that was happening all over the place. So they were like, they were still had an incredibly robust mail order operation, and what this did was create an intensely loyal fan base, so that no matter what SST put out. Um, and no matter where people lived, they sought these records out and they added them their, to their collection and they became fans of, of the band. And so really this sense of like a brand loyalty basically helped helped bolster them and, and allowed them to get over some of those kind of those those that constant cash crutch. Yeah, SST was moving incredibly large numbers of um, Husker Du, um, Bad Brains had their big record then and um, and even negative land um escape from noise moved something like thirty thousand copies so they were in a, in a very strong position uh financially finally and 
that's when I mean again these tensions come out. So they they sign that's because eighty six is also when that that first generation of great bands um start to leave the label or start to make moves away from the label, right? Yeah, well, well, it's also when Black Flag breaks up and Greg Ginn has um, more time and energy to put into the label and now has has cash. So in 1986 is when you see, you know, the first huge run of new bands being signed. I think from 1986 to 1988, you know, they put out like was their peak era in terms of releases, just tons and tons of releases. And and what's interesting is that, and in terms of thinking about it, you know, more as a business. I mean, a lot of these releases were by people kind of already in their orbit, and and the rest of them. I mean, I spent, and I'm sure there there absolutely are gems in there. Like I'm a I'm a Universal Congress fan, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, there's a lot of uh, the I'd say the hit rate goes down in that era. In terms of uh, bands that make an impact on on the, the the evolution of American music, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but SST was, and Greg in particular, was very much a believer in in um, putting out the records, documenting what was happening, but also like not that concerned. You know, didn't have like a, a real heavy hand in the studio about like trying to shape what a band looked or sounded like. It's like, look, you know, this is who you are now. If you're better next year, we'll put out that record too. Uh, every every band had a record-to-record um, contract. There were no long contracts with SST. And as long as things were cool, uh, you were able to put out another record. And, you know, now what that definition of cool meant a lot of things because um, sometimes the, the bands felt... Like the record wasn't pulling their weight, and that in order to, you know, what SST wanted from its bands was to tour, to get out, play shows, get on the radio, if possible, you know, college radio, um, do interviews, do go place, you know, do all the things that Black Flag did. And, and uh, when there was not a financial reward for that, then there started to be some tensions between the label and its artists. I mean, I feel like this is also a period of time if we're talking about 86 to 88, maybe even a little bit later, where, you know, the the kind of the stakes of the underground start to change. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there's this idea that, you know, punk, you know, punk broke in 91, but clearly Husker Du was signed to a major before then. The Meat Puppets were signed to a major before then. Sonic oh, yeah. Youth was signed to a major before then. And so there is, you know, a sense that maybe... Um, that amazing sense of like betwixt in between that had, had allowed SST to, to kind of, you know, it was part a business, part a movement um, that it allowed it to attract all these astounding bands to the label. It seemed like it started to fray a little bit. Cause if you, if you were a, a, you know, an up and coming band that wanted to make a big mark on the world by I'd say 80, you know, 88, Maybe you had some other choices besides SST. I mean, Sonic Youth or maybe Dinosaur Jr. are the last of those bands that really seems like they're seeking out SST. Yeah, well, no, a lot, a lot of, a lot of bands. Yeah, you're right. A lot of bands were, and then SST was also poaching bands from other labels. Like both of those examples were, they were right. on Homestead first. Um, SST didn't have any any real qualms about doing that, um, but what. But I think what happens is is that um, there's only a limited number of really talented musicians putting out amazing records at any one time, right? Sure. You're only good by you can, you're only good by comparison. You know, not everything that everyone does can be the best thing ever. Um, I don't think that's you know really a startling <laughs> statement to make, right? <laughs> so, like when you have the major labels starting to poach some of these artists and take some of these you know um you know artists and put out their band put out their records um then it kind of stretches everybody thin because not only does the do the indie labels have you know fewer artists of exceptional quality but also the distributors you know are feel the pinch as well there's not as much material in the pipeline 
to to make it all pay to make it work i mean that really robust period of indie music was working was because you know because it wasn't all mail order people were buying stuff in stores and things were they were finding things on 120 minutes uh you know alternative radio uh, video programming college radio i mean all of these things contributed to finding out about these bands and being able to seek them out and 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 purchase a copy right and then when there's fewer artists in that pipeline well then people start feeling the pinch you know the and it's the distributors you know first i mean i guess the record stores i mean they're not if they're not ordering from you then the distributors can't pay their bill, bills to the artists and if that to the labels and if the labels aren't getting paid then they're not going to be signing new bands and making new records and then when you get to the point where there are uh, bankruptcies and things like that then then you then you see things co- starting to collapse right 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 and 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 distributors are really interesting so you're saying that in some ways having a couple of big records that you know we're going to sell a lot of copies means that they can be pulled into networks of professional distribution more easily than the what like 70 records that SST um released in what 87 or whatever. Yeah, and this was what like the complaint of uh one of the complaints of Sonic Youth is that um why are they putting out so many bands um of lesser quality um you can't promote them all right they're not all going to be you can't it really stretches you know the very limited resources that a label has because some i mean you got to make these records and you got to produce covers and you got to promote them and make catalogs and you got to try to book shows for them when they're out on the road and you got to um you know get people to try to review them and all these things so it, it really um stretches these things thin and sonic youth understood that and bristled at it um you know people would uh, tell me about approaching sonic youth and say hey we just got we just got signed to sonic to sst and they'd be like you know fucking great you know <laughs> another one and, you know but i mean they had a good point i mean there was just like a, a you know how many uh like spoken word uh, records was SST releasing, you know, during this period, right? You know, how many jazz influenced records, you know, how many um, instrumental records, you know, like quite a few. Yeah. Quite a few. If listeners, if you haven't before, go to the Wikipedia SST discography and be startled and alarmed by the number of instrumental quasi jazz punk records this label released oh yeah i mean i think not in the period that we're talking about sst has basically stopped um you can't really call them a punk label anymore i mean once husker du left and sonic youth left and um you know they're they were on to something else and i mean the culture was on to something else yeah and and it's interesting i think to think about because in my head, I think this runs a little bit in parallel to the story of like Discord records, say, you know, in that, um, you know, very different bands, uh, very different feels, uh, maybe similar sense of mission. But both labels, it's interesting in that, are we going to become a business or are we kind of a, a more personal project? Both of them kind of chose the latter, right? The SST didn't you know, go broke in the 90s as it chased the post-grunge zeitgeist or something, SST kind of slowly dwindled away and released fewer and fewer records, and more and more of them are tied directly to Greg. Um, And similarly, Discord, right? I mean, Discord has a couple bands, again, in, in the, I guess, early 2000s, but for the most part, we're just kind of Rather than institutionalizing, it feels like rather than like building out a staff and like picking, you know, who's gonna who's the twenty year old who's gonna know what the kids are listening to next generation. They were they they seemed happy to kind of you know just let things let things roll, right? But um, and this is another one of those you know contradictions in the sense that you know here's uh, take the story of uh, Henry Rollins, right? Who's you know young man when he gets signed to be um the new singer the fourth singer of black flag 
and gets his eyes opened, you know, to the punk rock scene on the West Coast, but also to the literary scene. Um, you know, Chuck Dukowski, who had some ambitions there, takes him under his wing, and he meets all these interesting people, and and then creates this, which is still continues today, this spoken word career, right? And right, and through, I mean, he's looking at like his different, you know, like okay, I can maybe do my own version of SST, but he's getting ripped off by SST. And he's like, well, wait a second. How is it fair for one person to be able to have this lifestyle, but the other people cannot if they're not getting paid? Um, that doesn't seem like a very you know cool way to, to do your art. Um, maybe it is smarter to do it as a business, or at least not smarter, but like more fair more equitable to all the parties who pour their blood, sweat, and tears into this art. If it is run like a business, that way everybody gets compensated for the work that they do. But how many artists go into their art with that kind of clarity of thinking in mind, right? Thinking like, well, you know, at some point we'll, we'll struggle, but if we get a break, then we're going to turn it into something that's much more, you know, uh, a socially conscious and effective thing where we all, where we're all equally compensated. It's like, well, that takes a lot of work. There's no art involved in any of that. And <laughs> yeah. I think we see it over and over again in the indie community of people trying to navigate that intersection of art and commerce and figuring out what they're good at, what they're not, and how to get the help they need or balance their time, energy, finances, resources without either burning out or, you know, bumming out a lot of people. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. And you, do you have anything to plug? You have a, a paperback coming. Yes. So uh, the, the paperback version of Corporate Rock Sucks comes out not soon, but in early summer, early June of 2023. And um, that does have some, it doesn't have bonus content, but uh, it does, you know, add and, correct a few things that i've learned since then um a lot of the people i interviewed came back with some more information about things that i was able to make a few tweaks uh that might be of interest and then um i have a novel coming out kind of a punk adjacent novel on april 11th 2023 called make it stop about a dysfunctional vigilante group in near future la so stay tuned for both Thank you again. Very welcome. Thank you. 